Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we ask you for help now, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ, that you would give us a heart inflamed for the glory of God, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word, and that we would love your word, as the psalmist says. Lord, help us to hear your word rightly by the aid of your spirit, and that we would leave this place saying it was good to be in the house of the Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Who changed your heart? Who changed your heart? Did you change your own heart? Or did God, in his grace, change your heart? And when I say heart, I am talking about not the physical organ within your chest. But I am talking about what the Bible says about the heart and the mind, that the heart and mind are synonymous words that mean the same thing many times in the Bible. The heart is the focal point of who you are as a human being. It's where your thoughts are, your emotions are, your affections are. It's how you process truth. You realize right from wrong. That is the heart of a human being. So who changed your heart? Did God change your heart? Or did you change your heart? How did you go from hating God with your lifestyle and your words to now loving God with your lifestyle and your words? One reformer says it like this, quote, Rebirth or regeneration, this is talking about those who are born again. Rebirth or regeneration is monergistic. Monergistic means it's one way, one direction. In other words, biblically speaking, that the work of the heart comes from God in heaven by the aid of the Holy Spirit downward to the sinner. Monergistic, it's one work, one way. God is doing the work, not the human being. So he goes on to say that it's not synergistic, meaning it's not a cooperation between God and man. It's not a cooperation. It is done by God and by God alone. Why? Because a dead man cannot cooperate with his own resurrection. The Bible's very clear that when human beings are born, yes, they're physically alive, but spiritually speaking, the, the, we are, all of us, all of humanity is DOA. We understand DOA, dead on arrival. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. He goes on to say, Lazarus did not cooperate in his resurrection, which is true. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God in which man plays no role. Those of you who are independent, high-strung, love to lift yourself out of difficult circumstances by your own bootstraps, you're strong. That statement goes to the center of your heart and center of your pride. Because now you're dependent fully upon God to do something. Because you can't help yourself, because dead men and women and children cannot help themselves. 
After God brings us to life, of course, we certainly are involved in cooperating with him. So, again, we are physically alive but spiritually dead. But when God does a mighty work in our hearts, and when we're spiritually alive for the first time, then there's a cooperation between God and man to live for God or not live for God at that point. We are to believe, trust, obey, and work for him, he goes on to say, this reformer. But that's after we're born again. But unless God acts first, we will never be reborn in the first place. See, unless God does a work first, you are hopeless. I am hopeless. We are helpless. Dead men and women can't help themselves. We must also realize it's not as if dead people have faith. Think about that statement for a second. If we're physically alive but we're spiritually dead, can dead people actually generate this thing called faith or trust? Biblically, theologically speaking, you can't. And because of their faith, God agrees to regenerate them. What he's saying is we don't have faith first, and then God sees, oh, this sinner has faith. Therefore, I'm going to cause this person to be born again. No. Rather, it is because God has regenerated us first and given us a new life that we have faith. So from a biblical perspective, especially when it comes to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace we are saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It is the work of who? God. And what is that talking about? Is that repentance, which I'll talk about here in a minute, and faith, the ability to believe and trust in God, or in this case, trust in Jesus, repentance and faith, from a biblical perspective, is called grace gifts. Why would we call that grace gifts? Is because those gifts come from heaven down to humanity. Because dead people can't generate belief and trust. Dead people don't want to repent of their sins. That's why, from a biblical-slash-reform position, repentance and faith are gifts from God in heaven down to mankind. And when God changes the heart, you want to, we want to repent of our sins. We want to trust in Jesus. So we are in Luke 5, 27-32. Just with that introduction alone, I should just say amen, close the Bible, and we walk off. But we still have a sermon to go through. So we're in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32, entitled, The Call to Repentance. The Call to Repentance. And the main point today is this. The salvation call, which is an internal call, truly changes the sinner's heart. Truly changes the sinner's heart. Now, most of us would read that, hear that, understand that, gladly receive that, and we say amen to that statement. But it's not true because of our personal experience. It's true because of the Word of God. That's why it's true. Our background is in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. Jesus has an interaction with a paralytic, a paralyzed man, 
And Jesus does something amazing for this paralytic man. Not only is this paralytic man physically healed and able to stand, take up his cot, and walk home to his family, which requires muscles to grow, muscles to strengthen, the ability to, for the brain and the body to somehow cooperate where you can balance yourself and walk for the first time in your life, which is a miracle in and of itself. But also Jesus forgives this paralytic man of all his sins. All his sins. This man received the greatest gift ever. Salvation from God in Christ. Oh, by the way, I'm physically healed. That's a great bonus on top. And how does that happen? It's because Jesus is God. How does that happen? Because Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man. How does that happen? Because Jesus is the Savior, the promised Old Testament Messiah. He is the Christ. Now we're in verse 27, which is our text for today. Jesus is up in the area of the Sea of Galilee, up in the northern part of the region. And up in that region is a place called Capernaum, which is the north side of the sea. And he's in this area, and he sees a certain person, a tax collector, a revenue officer. These are the people who love to take our money, similar to the IRS of today. And so he sees this tax collector named Levi. But in Matthew 9 and Matthew 10, in the, the parallel accounts of this text, his name is Matthew. In the first century, it was nor normal. It was normal for Jews to have two names. And in this ca case, it's Levi or Matthew. But this tax collectors, what they would do is on major trade routes between city to city or port to port, they would have stationed these tax booths. And they would man these tax booths at either highways or bridges or even canals. And they would take people's money. If you want to go from point A to point B, you got to give some money. We understand that if you've driven in Houston, Texas, a major city, or in Florida where you have toll booths, you want to go from point A to point B fast, short distance, guess what? You're going to have to pay money. If you're a farmer by chance and you want to bring your goods or your produce from your farm and into the city to sell your produce to make a profit, then you would have what's called a sales tax. And so that's how they made money. That's how the government, or in this case, the Roman government, made money. And that extra cost would obviously be passed down to the consumer. But tax collectors in general were despised people. They were looked down upon because many tax collectors were Jewish. And so the Jewish people looked at the Roman government as Gentiles, as dogs, as outsiders of the faith, as occupiers in our land. That's how Jews looked at the Roman government. And so the Roman government would hire tax collectors. Many of them would be Jewish, but the Jewish people would look down upon the Jewish tax collector. Why? Because they looked at their fellow Jewish person who happens to be a tax collector as a traitor. You're working for the government. Now, 
There's nothing wrong with legitimate work. But in the case of tax collectors, these people many times were dishonest. They were liars. They would steal money, the money of hard-working people. How would they do that? So if you want to use this bridge and the Roman government hired this tax collector that you are to collect 10%, then the tax collector would say, oh, the Roman government wants you to pay 15% or 20%. Anything above the minimum would be profit put into the pockets of tax collectors. That's how tax collectors enriched themselves. That's why tax collectors had lavish lifestyles. That's how come tax collectors lived good. They lived a good life based off of that type of work. So, obviously, if you're a Jew and you see a Jewish tax collector, you would say in your mind, automatically, traitor, betrayer, working for the Roman government. This was a very profitable line of work if you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal. So our text today, regarding... uh, Levi, the tax collector, it's important to understand that not only do we have Levi in this story, but we have other tax collectors in this story. We have others who are identified as sinners. We have Jesus in the story. We have Jesus' disciples, but also we have Pharisees and scribes. And we need to be reminded that the point of this text today, is the salvation call truly changes the sinner's heart. So now we're in verse 27, the second half of verse 27, the call. Read with me. And he, referring to Jesus, and he said to him, talking about Levi, two words, follow me. Follow me. In the original language, this is known as the divine imperative. The divine imperative is a command that comes from God or a command that comes from Christ, from God, from Christ to the person. And so Jesus calls Levi to follow him. See, the problem with preaching a text like this is that we read this and we think to ourselves, this is follow the leader. If Jesus goes to the left, Levi goes to the left. If Jesus goes to the right, then Levi goes to the right. This is not physical, positional leadership, even though there's an aspect of that. It's much more than that. It's not the outside that counts, per se. It's the inside that counts. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of salvation. And salvation has come to this wicked tax collector in Jesus Christ. This tax collector is changed from the inside out. This is not a matter of behavior modification. It's not a matter of Jesus going to the tax collector and saying to the tax collector, Levi, quit stealing from the people. It's more than that. Follow me, which means you have a change of heart, which means that you're a disciple of Christ which means that it's going to cost you everything, Levi, to follow me. That's what's implied in this text. And if we're not careful, we'll miss this part. 
So this is a change of heart that leads to a change of action and lifestyle. Those who are truly born again, those who are truly regenerated by God, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, on the inside are changed forever. And Jesus commands Levi, this is not an option. This is not Jesus going to Levi. Levi, if you think that you shouldn't follow me, then don't follow me, because it may go bad for you. No, that's not it at all. It's Levi, follow me. Period. End of statement. So who is in control? It's definitely not Levi. Levi was not looking for Jesus. Levi was not looking for salvation. Levi was not looking for the Savior. It's the Savior and his salvation that came to Levi. Jesus is is in control. That's clear. Jesus, Jesus is the only one in control here. Let me give an example of Jesus calling others. We've read about this in Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Luke 5, verse 10. We have James. We have John. We have Simon Peter. And Jesus goes to Simon Peter and he says, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching what? Men. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats, this is James and John with Simon Peter, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. They followed him. So what we should be thinking right now is this statement, this two-word statement, this two-word command is not natural, but supernatural. This is not just a man calling a man to do something. This is the God-man supernaturally calling a human being to do something that he would never do on his best religious day. They left everything and followed him, Jesus. So Jesus, when he calls people to do something, Jesus has the power and the authority to do so. But also God has the power and the authority to do so. For example, we see that at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light. What happened, God's people? And there was light. That's the call of the sovereign God. How about in Genesis 1, 9, when God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. What is God doing? God is defining the geography. All the water on the earth go here, call that the seas, and all the dry ground, it's called dry land over here. There's a separation, there's a definition to the geography. The Lord said, let there be water here, and land here. And what does the text say? And it was so. Even inanimate objects obey the sovereign king. How about in Genesis 1.24? When the Lord separates wild beasts from domesticated beasts, and the Lord says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. 
So what is the Lord doing? He is organizing animals by their kind. And what does the Bible say in Genesis 1.24? And it was so. God calls. God is sovereign. When God commands, things happen. How about Jesus? Pastor Corey talked about it a little bit in his opening prayer. And in my mind, I'm saying, amen, brother, go preach my message. I can just sit down and receive the word and be filled with God's word. Praise God. I need a break every now and then, right? But in John chapter 11, verse 43, John 11, verse 43, when he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Remember the story of Lazarus is dead? Remember? The disciples say to Jesus, actually Jesus says to the disciples, we're going to go over here. And the disciple says, well, Lazarus has been in the grave for a couple days. I love the King James Version. Lord, he stinketh. Why are we going there to see a dead man? And then now Jesus is on the scene. Jesus understands the turmoil and the broken hearts of the family and the close relatives. And Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, what? Come out. And what happens? Verse 44, the man who had died, referring to Lazarus, came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus says to Lazarus, who's a dead man, come out. And Lazarus comes out because he hears the sovereign call of Jesus and he comes out semi-mummified with a head wrap and linen cloths around his body. I guess if Jesus would have said, Lazarus, come out with no linen cloths, he would have came out with no linen cloths. But that's all Jesus said. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came back to life, and he came out with linen cloths. God is sovereign has authority and power. Jesus is God, has authority and power. When the Lord speaks, things happen. Therefore, we should not think of Jesus' statement as just a natural statement of, hey, just follow me. No, we should think of it as the king of creation, the king of the universe, the Savior has said to you, Levi, come, follow me. That's how we're to look at this text. You know, it's very clear that if you read between the lines, so to speak, Levi is very good at living for himself. You're not in this line of work to help others. You're not really in this line of, line of work to help the government, so to speak. But in this case, in Levi's case, he's a licensed professional thief. He has a job and it's a legal job to steal from people. Again, Levi's not looking for Jesus. He's not looking to be a follower of Jesus. Yet Jesus and his salvation came to this wicked, greedy, evil traitor. If you think about Levi's situation, we're not much different than Levi. 
I would actually argue we're just like Levi. How many of us are without sin? The Bible's clear that we have all sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of us have lied? How many of us have stolen? How many of us have cheated on our taxes? We have all sinned against God. Yet in God's kindness and grace, salvation has come to the lowliest of the low. And we praise God for that. God's grace came to Levi. God's grace came to us. What did we deserve to receive salvation? Nothing. That's what grace is all about. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. God's favor upon us, not because we earned it, it's because God is gracious and it's unearned. So how do we know that salvation came to Levi? Well, let's look at Levi's response in verse 28. Read with me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. With him. When Jesus, Jesus said to Levi, follow me, did you notice in the text there was no hesitation? There was no arguing? There was no counter-arguing? There was no sort of second-guessing at all? There were no debates? There was no additional dialogue? He simply got up and followed Jesus. How does that happen? John 10, 27 gives us a good answer of why that happens. John 10, 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they, what? Follow me. When Jesus makes this statement, says, My sheep, there's personal possession there. My sheep. Jesus does not say in this text, My goats. My giraffes, my foxes, my hippopotamuses. He says, my sheep. Not just any sheep, but my sheep. Sheep that belong to me, Jesus. Sheep represent believers. Those who place their faith in Christ. They are, they are disciples of Jesus. These are people who have a change of heart again that leads to a change of life again. And Levi is one of those sheep who hear the sweet, loving voice of the Savior who says, follow me. Some of you may say, well, Pastor Rolo, that's just not good enough. Well, that's what the Bible says. To add to this, to prove that this is no ordinary call or ordinary command, to prove also that Levi had a genuine change of heart, we need to look at Levi's actions. Because actions speak louder than words. He had a change of heart that led to a change of action. What did he do in this text? He decided that, hey, I'm going to have a party. 
a feast, a banquet. And this is not some small party because the text says a large crowd. The The Bible doesn't say exactly how many people. But in biblical times, that's your family, your grandmother, your grandfather, your cousins, everybody. And in this text, he invites people who are the worst kind of people to invite to a party. He invited other tax collectors. That's something you're not supposed to do. And he invites the Pharisees to just stand at the door, so to speak, and watch. And so Levi invites these other people, these other tax collectors, these sinners. If you understand meals in biblical times, meals are very personal. They're very intimate. They're very special. We understand that when we have a meal here or we have a meal in our homes. In other words, to host a meal with all these people require a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money, and possibly servants to put this whole thing together because to have servants, you have to have money, which makes, case, which makes sense in the tax collector's situation. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is this. It requires a lot of sacrifice to host a dinner party, especially during these times. And what I find amazing is this. The man who loves to take everybody's money is now spending money to bless other people. It's no, it's no longer, let me take your money. It's more of, let me bless you by spending money. So this is sacrifice. This is expensive. But also, can you imagine that at this dinner party, that they're talking about sports? No. They're not talking about sports. They're not talking about the daily mundane things of life. They're talking about something I would imagine is greater than all of that. Salvation in Christ. This is the way that I would see it in my own warped pea brain, as a wise preacher once said. You know, fellow tax collectors who are in my home today, you're here for a very special reason. I want to explain to you what happened to me. I'm in Capernaum collecting money. Actually, I was stealing money. I knew that it was sinful. I knew that it was wrong until this man, Jesus, came to me. And he said to me two words that changed my life forever. Follow me. And I felt this burning passion and desire and a burden to follow Jesus. And I left my previous sinful lifestyle, and I followed Jesus to this day. And that's the reason that all of you are invited in my house to have a meal. And I spent all this money to bless you. As a matter of fact, this Jesus is right over here reclining with us and having a meal. Because it makes no sense to have a party and talk about anything else than Jesus Christ. This man has been changed from the inside out. I don't see how people can be changed by Christ or by God and to keep that great news to themselves. 
you remember when the paralytic was healed a few verses earlier? What happened? He went home glorifying God, praising God. And you remember the crowd at that time? They saw this supernatural event. And they said to themselves, we've seen some strange, unbelievable things. And they praised and glorified God. And every time Jesus performed a miracle, that news of that miracle spread across the region. And the reputation and the fame of Jesus spread and got larger and larger. And he was well known during that time frame. But it's amazing that every time Jesus does something, his fame continues on. People hear about Jesus. I cannot, for the life of me, think of having a meal after being changed by Christ and not talking about Christ. I want to just add a practical point here. A practical point. I believe that there is much benefit for Christians to invite Christians and other people who are non-Christians into your homes, into my homes to have a meal. That's good. That's right. That's proper. Biblical Christianity also includes biblical hospitality. If you're a Christian, you should bless others. Not necessarily with money but with your home. With your home. Think about that. We get the privilege of serving others into our homes with meals and conversations. Some of the best conversations you'll ever have at the dining room table are conversations about Jesus. Conversations about the gospel. Talking about real life with real people and real struggles in life. And the hope and the answer and the resolution is always the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of Jesus Christ. But we also need to make a distinction that there is a difference between our personal testimony, what God has done for us in Christ, how we got saved, versus what Christ has done for sinners. It's because of this. Jesus saves, not our testimony. I don't have a problem with testimonies, but you better get to Jesus eventually. Get to Jesus. Be intentional. So why am I talking about this? In my warped pea brain, I believe that this meal is an evangelistic meal for Christ's glory. I know that's not stated explicitly, but how can you be changed by God and invite a bunch of people to your home and not be talking about Jesus. So how do we know that salvation came to Levi? Jesus called Levi with a supernatural call and command. And Levi immediately left everything to follow Jesus. Levi also sacrificed time, money, resources, and possibly servants. He invited all these people into his home. He invited the wrong people into his home. And yet he served them without complaining. You know, any time that Jesus does something great, there's always going to be naysayers. And we see this in our text today in verse 30. Verse 30, Luke 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? As you read the Gospels, have you ever noticed that the Pharisees and scribes are very good at grumbling? They're very good at complaining. They're always attacking the ministry of Jesus. Jesus does something good, they always look for the negative. In the second century, there was a group of people called the Hasidim. The Hasidim. The Hasidim were a group of people who would hold strictly to the Mosaic law. They were religious zealots, so to speak. And they believed that to live a religious life is to live a pious life. A life where you learn about the Mosaic law and that you're faithful to the Mosaic law. Very pious people. But they did this against the backdrop against Greek culture and Greek influence. What was happening behind the scenes socially is that Jews wanted to hold on to their Jewishness and so that any Greek influence that tried to invade the Jewish culture, they pushed back on that. This is the group called the Hasidim. Well, the Pharisees are theological descendants of the Hasidim. They believed in the same thing. They held on to the same patterns. And because the Pharisees held to a strict observance of the law and ritual purity, what, it, what ended up happening is the Pharisees created a gap, a social religious gap between the sanctimonious elite called the Pharisees and the general audience called the sinners. So there's a gap socially and religiously. And so when we think about this, the Pharisees are on the outside of the house of Levi. They're not on the inside. Why is this? It's because for the Pharisees and scribes to be in the home of Levi means that they are considered defiled by being in the house. Remember, there's this social religious gap. We see what's happening in the home, we hear what's happening in the home, but we're not going to step foot in the home. Because for Pharisees, they would be defiled. To have any sort of table fellowship with Gentiles or sinners, especially tax collectors, is a no-go. It's not allowed according to their laws and traditions. So what do they do? The Pharisees decide that they're going to express their discontent not with Jesus directly, but with his disciples. And what are they actually saying? They're saying to the disciples of Jesus, why do you eat and drink with these sinners? In other words, you disciples of Jesus are defiled. What's implied? Jesus is defiled. That's what they're implying. Jesus is also defiled. When we think about the Old Testament, the Bible's very clear that God is holy. We see that in Isaiah 6, that God, the Lord, is the thrice holy God. He is not to be played around with. And so God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. That's why you have a tabernacle, which is temporary, and then you have a temple, that only certain people could go into these structures. For anybody to go into these structures on the wrong day with the wrong title means death. And so there's a separation between God's holiness 
and man's sinfulness. And that temple and tabernacle is to preserve God's holiness, but it's also to protect God's people from destruction and judgment. So God, in one sense, is separated from God's people in the Old Testament, but yet he's with his people at the same time. And by the time we get to the New Testament, what's amazing now is that God in Christ is with the lowliest of the low. God in Christ is with tax collectors, these lying thieves and traitors. That God in Christ is with sinners. Do you see the compassion of God in Christ? That he would condescend, humiliate himself, and be with the wickedest of the wicked. The lowliest of the low. That's you and that's me. It's amazing of God's grace and compassion for sinners. And how does Jesus respond? We see this in verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus speaks in a way, he's using an analogy here, he speaks in a way where he makes a distinction between self-righteousness and God's righteousness. One is sinful, self-righteousness. Why? Because it's rooted in pride versus God's righteousness. And so he's saying here that those who are healthy don't need a doctor. They don't need the doctor's advice. They don't need the doctor's medicine. Why? Because in their mind and in their heart, they're not sick. They're healthy. We understand that. We only go to the doctor when we're sick. And then we're willing to take the doctor's medicine. And so again, Jesus is making this distinction between God's righteousness and self-righteousness. Those who are self-righteous don't see their need for salvation. As a matter of fact, they don't see their need for Jesus. But those who are sick, those are self-identified sinners who understand and realize that they're sick, meaning that they need help in order to be forgiven by God, received by God, loved by God. Those who are sick need a doctor. Those who are sick need medicine. And the medicine that they need is Jesus Christ. They need Jesus Christ. They need what Jesus can provide for sinners. That is salvation in Christ. Jesus says, I did not come to call, meaning summon. This is a sovereign summon. He says, I did not come to call the self-righteous. He didn't come here to call the Pharisees and the scribes. He didn't come to call good people and moral people. By the way, good people don't go to heaven. Whoa, Pastor Rolo, that sounds weird. No, good people go to hell. Why? Because they're so good, they don't need Jesus, therefore they end up in hell. It's bad people, sinners, who understand that they're sick and that they're going to be judged by God. And God has every right to judge them because God created them. God designed them so that they would worship God, their creator, 
and Lord and King, but yet in their rebellion and their stiff-neckedness, their neckedness, they rebelled against God. But yet, in God's kindness, He gives sinners a way out. He gives them the medicine that they need, which is in Christ. So Jesus says, I didn't come to call the self-righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. What is Jesus doing? With this statement, He is mocking the religion of the Pharisees. He is mocking their religious identity. He's addressing their self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Are you a sinner? Have you broken the law of God? Have you violated God's will for your life? If that's yes, then you're a sinner. Oh, by the way, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you want to admit it or not, we are all sinners. We have all sinned against God. Is that you? The answer is yes. But there's hope for us. There's hope for you and me. Repentance, again, is a gift from the Lord. What is repentance? See, many people believe that repentance is, I got caught, was a little remorseful, God loves me, therefore forgives me, and I just keep going on with my life. I keep going on with my life. And if I keep doing the same sin, same sin, over and over again, it's okay because God loves me. No, that's not biblical repentance. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit in the sinner's heart that results in a change of mind. That does not mean that genuine Christians do not sin. What it does mean is this, that genuine Christians, those who are born again, when they do sin against God, it bothers you in here, in your heart. You're saying to yourself, I feel dirty. I feel defiled. I've sinned against my God and my Creator and my Lord, and I can't stand it. I can't even sleep at night. No matter how much soap I use to wash my body as I'm taking a shower, I still feel dirty. And I don't want to do this sin anymore. I've come to the end of that. I'm turning my back on my sin. That's what it means to have biblical repentance. But we live in a land that repentance is, I just got caught, I cried a little bit of tears but I'm still going to love my sin and sin against God. If that's you, that is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, I've had a change of heart, therefore I have a change of mind, therefore I had a change of decision and a change of lifestyle, and my heart's goal is to honor Christ. And when I sin, I go to Him in humble submission, and I say, Lord, please forgive me again. And guess what? He forgives us again. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's real Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. So, repentance is a turning away from our sin. 
but also it's a turning to God in Christ. If you turn away from one thing, you're turning to something, or in this case, someone, which is Jesus. The question is, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? See, the message of Christ, the message of hope, the message of salvation requires that we see our sin for what it truly is. It's an offense against the living God, and we turn our back on that. But it's also a turning to Christ where we say Jesus is all, and Jesus is enough, and Jesus is my Savior. He's the one that lived and died for me. But also, salvation requires that we repent. A biblical salvation always requires a biblical repentance. A biblical salvation always includes a biblical repentance. So what does that have to do with us today, Pastor Roll? It's this. It's this. That what I am doing right now, the words that are coming out of my mouth and into your ears and through your brain and through your heart, It's called preaching. Preaching. And what that is, is this, is that you hear the word of God, it's the external call or the outward call, same same language. And what is happening here? The external call is heard audibly by both the elect of God and the non-elect of God, meaning it goes to everybody. Human beings have the ability to resist or refuse the outward external call. That's true. Because right now, every time I preach on Sunday, I see one person right here who hears the word of God and the spirit of God takes the words that are coming out of my mouth and drives them deep into the heart of this person. And this person is broken over their sin. They hate their sin and they love Jesus and they want to follow Jesus. But the next person who's three inches over stands there stoic or sits there stoic. Cold-faced, cold-hearted, non-responsive. That's the external call in that second person. So human beings have the ability to resist or refuse the outward external call. Those who are spiritually dead have no desire to have communion or fellowship with their Lord and Savior. Those who are spiritually dead. So when Christians who have good intentions say, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, including the world, that's wrong. That's biblically wrong. Theologically wrong. Human beings do resist the outward call until the Holy Spirit intercedes. Until the Holy Spirit intercedes. Because the opposite of the external call is the inward call. The opposite of the outward call is the inward call. And the internal call is known as the effectual call. And all that means is that It's a call that comes from God to do something and is supernatural in the life of a believer. Let me say it like this. The call of God, 
that by his sovereign power and authority brings about his designed and ordained effect or result. Let me say it like this. If you are the elect of God, you will hear the word of God, the hope of the message in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will drive that gospel message into your heart, cause you to be born again, and you will repent. And you will trust in Jesus. That's how that works. Biblically, theologically speaking. It's the inward call. It's a supernatural call that cannot be denied. In Matthew chapter 1, when it talks about Jesus, the Savior, coming to earth, and the text says, and he, referring to Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. We're talking about the inward call. In theological circles, this is called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. What does that mean? It's God's grace prevails over the natural resistance to it. It's God's grace. God's amazing grace. God's sovereign grace. God's powerful grace in the life of the believer. God sovereignly sovereignly brings about its desired result. That's the effectual call. That's the inward call. It changes our disposition. It changes our inclination. It changes our thoughts and the way we live. It's for those who are of the elect. And so now we get into these theological discussions of, well, am I elect or non-elect? God knows, and that's not our business to figure out who the elect are. The Bible's clear. You shall know them by their fruits. Because a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every bad tree is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. That's judgment. So we could sit here and, and have theological discussions and say, am I elect or not elect? But the reality is this. You will know that you are God's people when the word of God becomes real in your heart and you have a genuine desire to follow Christ. That's what we should be concerned about. So why am I belaboring this inward, outward call? Because the inward call is what happened to Levi. This is a powerful call when Jesus said, come, follow me. This is not follow the leader. This is follow the Messiah. This is God doing a work on the inside. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad and I'm grateful to God that you're here. But what you need is salvation that can only come from Christ, through Christ, and by Christ. That's what you need. And you may be sitting here saying, well, I really didn't have a desire to follow Christ, but now I have a desire to follow Christ. The Spirit of God may be doing a work in your life. The Lord may be calling you, so to speak, right now with that inward effectual call. So my encouragement to you is obey Him. Honor Him. Submit to Him. Quit living for yourself and live for Him. 
That's why you are created. That's what you're designed to do. But we praise God for what He's done for us. Are we not grateful for what He's done for us? That God's grace has prevailed over our natural resistance to the gospel. God's will supersedes our will. God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom. When God says he will save his people, take that to the bank. He will save his people. But that does not mean that we don't have a responsibility to share the truth of God's word, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ with others. We still have a responsibility to do that. So I want to encourage God's people. Be mindful of what God has done for you. He changed your heart. He changed your mind. He changed your life. He changed your decision making. He changed your lifestyle. All by God's grace, you see the beauty of Christ now and you behold the beauty of Christ and you want everything to do with Christ now. How does that happen? Because of God's grace. Yes, Human beings can resist the outward call because the outward call doesn't have the Holy Spirit in it. You can resist today's message, but when the Holy Spirit is in it, you can't resist that. You don't see that at all in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord came to Abraham, he says, get up out of the Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place where I will show you. You never see Abraham saying, well, Lord, let me think about that. In the New Testament, when Saul was Saul and he was on the road to Damascus to enchain and put in custody and arrest other Christians, a bright light came upon him. And Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And what does Saul, who is now Paul, say? Lord, I don't know if I should follow you. No, what does he do? He obeys the Lord immediately. He goes to the right place at the right time immediately. That's how God works. That's how God changed your heart. That's like saying, okay, I'm a million dollars in financial debt, and this person over here wants to give me $10 trillion. And I say, but I love my million dollars in debt. Does that make any sense? No. When you see something glorious and valuable, you say, I want that, not that. So the question becomes, how do you see the Lord? See, what we've done many times in our Christian walk is we are not grateful for what God has done for us because the focus is on our little lives. Yes, God loves us. Yes, God is concerned for us. Yes, God provides for us and he sustains us. But your eyes are to be fixed upon him. Let me remind us of Ezekiel 36, 26. The Lord says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey 
my rules. Unless God does that, we are most men to be pitied. Unless God steps in and intervenes, there is no hope. But God stepped in, in the person of Christ. And we have hope, hope eternal. We have eternal life. What does that mean? We are forgiven by God, loved by God. Upon our death, he receives us unto himself in heaven. Many times Christians think that eternal life starts on the point of death when we die in this life. Eternal life starts then. No, no, no. When you've been born again and believe unto Jesus Christ, you have eternal life right now. Eternal life starts right now. Live as you were called to live. Live for Jesus. Amen. You have eternal life right now. We were the ones who were desperately sick. And yet God provided the perfect medicine for us in Jesus Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, called us with the inward call and we biblically repented and we serve Jesus as king of our lives. He's the only hope we have and he's the only hope we want. Salvation came to us and we praise God for that. Let me close with this. We have gone from a rebellious life to loving God. We were the ones who God called and we rose by his grace and followed him. I want to remind us that we are free to obey God now. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. You don't have a dead heart with a dead body. You have a live body with a live heart. You are free to obey God. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We are free to obey God by His grace. What we needed, God had provided in Jesus Christ. What God requires of us, God provided in Jesus Christ. He gave us the medicine of salvation. He gave us Jesus. What else do we need, God's people? What else do we need? Sermon in a sentence. The inward effectual call to us led to our repentance of sins and faith in Jesus. Therefore, we are changed forever for his glory. I want to encourage you, God's people. You repented at one point in your life. Continue to live for him by continually repenting of your sin and fighting sin. And God will help you by the aid of his spirit. God will help you. I hope you believe that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We've heard a hard word, but we've heard the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the gifts of repentance and faith. We thank you, O oh God, that you called us with a sovereign, mighty call, and we followed you. Oh God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Help us to live for you, and if need be, die for you, because you are worthy. In Christ we pray. Amen.